Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. He's lovely to assist to everybody. Yeah, probably is, actually. We trained him well. <laughs> he came and with Jacinda, and we had some good times. And then we just gave up. We thought, oh, I can't do these two, so we deported them. <laughs> and I have to look round, and I look at them, and I think, you've, you've done a good job with them. You're bringing them on. They're coming on nicely, I think. <laughs> so, bravo. Thank you. Like some of you, this is my first time ever. And it is manifestly obvious that I am very, very British, and proudly so. And it would not be appropriate, as you, I was glad that we did stop and look at, and of course that picture of the Queen made me cry. So I am jet-lagged and, we arrived last night, Uh, I am jet-lagged and emotional. So everything's all, all bets are off, frankly. (laughs) But I feel, I just, my, one of my boys wrote and said, Mummy, thank goodness you're going to a Commonwealth country. (laughs) <laughs> because of all the things in the world, I had long said, Lord, I just would be so sad if the Queen died when we were away. Because isn't it the strangest thing? Many people have said on Friday, I think it was she died on Thursday, on Friday people said, oh, there's a nation of people who are feeling sad, but they don't realize. Why would that happen to me? I feel so grieved. I, mean, I cried all through Thursday, and i am not, not stopped yet. But, it, you know, this was a woman that, well, none of us ever met. And we never really knew, and yet we loved dearly. And you know, for since I I was one of those people. Oh yes, I was born in the reign of George the Sixth. So come on, people, I have been around the block, and the Queen has been Queen for all all of my life, save only five years or whatever. Um, That was a giveaway. (laughs) What do you think? She's looking good, huh? (laughs) Seventy-five and cracking along. So, <laughs> I'm proud of it. So, isn't that funny? John's younger than me. He used to be younger, and he's still trying to catch up. So, <laughs> basically, I mean, this is a woman who's been there all our lives. I went to the lying-in state of Winston Churchill, and that was profoundly impressive. And now I'm out of the country, because I would have crossed the country, we live in the West Country now, to go to be there. So, I've deputed one of our boys in London and said, I want you to go there to represent us. It's so emotional. It's just so extraordinary. But you know, for all of my life, I have sung lustily, and my mother insisted on standing wherever she was. God save the queen, God save our gracious queen, long to reign over us. And I honestly believe God answered our prayer. I think he heard the cry of the needy nation, and she was raised up, and she was amazing. Of course, she believed in the divine right of kings and queens, and that she was anointed by God, um, Westminster Abbey in 1953, in order to lead her people to the day she dropped. And now she has, and God bless her. A friend of mine from America wrote and said she was great, but now she's enjoying her greatest day. So thank God for her, and pray God for the king. My darling John, who is hilarious, went all around. We were stuck in Sydney Airport for five hours. I can't tell you, it was dreadful. So anyway, John made good by going around everyone, and we're in Australia, not even in New Zealand, saying, how are you feeling about the new king? And on and on he went, every official, every baggage handler. I mean, he even took on the immigration officer. 
I mean, that was risky. We were lucky to get through, frankly, by the time John had started evangelizing about the new king. But, you know, he said he is our king and longed to reign over us. So God bless the king. And that's the end of my little diatribe. And now we might even turn to the scriptures. Before we do, I need to explain to you that I'm sorry it's only me and not the two of us, because generally speaking, um, John and I do, we travel everywhere together and we do everything together. So we were, re and we've been married for, well, we've known each other for 50 years and we've been married for most of those. So, I mean, we're talking long term here. And uh, we were on a flight recently and we were flying from London to Copenhagen. There's a wonderful vineyard in the Nordic in, in Denmark. And uh, we were put in separate rows. It's a 40-minute flight, people. And we were in different rows. So John called the attendant. And he said, excuse me, um, my wife and I have uh, been in love for 40 years, uh, 44 years and married for 40, uh, whatever it was at the time. And um, British Airways clearly haven't registered that. And I just wondered whether you might move. So we're not sitting together. We, we need to be sitting together. So the poor flight attendant went running around everybody, you know, like a sort of... <laughs> And nobody would move. Not a romantic on that flight. And do we wonder, London and, and Copenhagen, they don't do romance. So there was nobody who would move. And in the end, she came to me and said, I'm so sorry, my dear, I can't do it. And then John said, excuse me, excuse me from the row behind. Um, I don't want to add to your hassles, but you see, I struggle with separation anxiety. <laughs> I mean, what a clown. 40 minutes. So she bought it, and she went round again, trying to change. I know, nobody would move. And she came back, and she said to me, I'm sorry, my dear, I really can't make this happen. And then she said, you could probably do with a little break. <laughs> <laughs> From this sort of sex maniac in Roche. So I have to say that for us to be separated like this is really quite costly. But talking of separation, what a dream to be back together. I mean, we've paid a very, very high price over these last two years. And we've been watching, and we always say that you people in this land have probably paid the highest price of all. From us, you're so far away anyway. And then, I mean, it has been very, very strict, and you've been very, very isolated, and you haven't been able to cross your state boundaries any more than the Australians have. And we've been out of all this now for quite a while. So to come back and be asked to put a mask, I beg your pardon, <laughs> a mask, I see no mask. So we had to go backwards again. But it made me realize we have really, really suffered. And now being back together is just such a relief. And I agree with Matt, there's nothing like being together like this and praising God together as we have. And it's a very great joy. This is all by way of waffle. <laughs> and it's all by way of saying thank you for having me. And it is honestly a joy and a real privilege. And we have known each other for many years and we've been through the trenches together. Many people, as we travel around, will say to us, you know, what is this vineyard thing? You know, do you grow wine? No, we don't grow wine. Uh, would that we did. But that's not what we're for. We are actually a, a movement, a gaggle of churches. And we are quite simply a family with a purpose. That's who we are. We are family and we're sold out. Because we have encountered the person of Jesus We've realized that there's no one lovelier, no one deeper, no, no one more sympathetic, no one more perfect, no one more gentle and lowly. I could wax so eloquent just about Jesus. He is amazing. And we've discovered the real deep joy that comes from knowing that you are in touch with the living God.
And we have also discovered that this journey is best walked together. And the separation we have experienced recently has only underlined our absolute conviction that we do all this in the company of God's people, which is something called the church. And here we all are. So to put it succinctly, what we do in the vineyard is we preach the gospel and we plant churches. That's who we are, and that's what we do. We preach the gospel to anyone who will hear us, and we plant churches because that's the best way, ultimately, to reach the world. Now, if you have a Bible within reach of you, some of the real goody-goodies will now look down and pick up a Bible, and the rest of us will all pretend that we're going to be looking at our phones. You can do it electronically, as long as you promise not to do anything else but the Bible on it. Um, and we're going to look together at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, at verse 18. And I'm going to whistle through and read some of it to you. And um, then we'll consider what it says. This, I have to tell you by way of preamble, is amazing. This passage of scripture is phenomenal. And I want to read it to you or with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 and just a couple of verses into chapter 2. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. How many people around us think we're mad? But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Question mark. Let me stop for a moment. Let me give you context right there. The culture in Corinth in Paul's day was much as the culture in the Western world today, be it in London, be it in Auckland, frankly. Two things were highly valued about everything else, wisdom and power. Wisdom was the buzz word in Corinth. That was who they were about, that's what they talked about. It was cool, it was intellectually respectable to be wise, and you know, on the other side of the coin, they were contemptuous of foolishness. And just as you have your tame doctor or your dentist or your vet, the Corinthian would have his own guru, his own philosopher, that he would run to and regularly go for another dose of wisdom. That's how they worked. But it was also true that in the Corinth of Paul's day, they were really into and valued power, and they despised weakness. So anything in the ancient world that was weak was considered despicable, which is why women were despised. Slaves were despised. Disabled people were despised. Cowards were despised. Weaklings, failures were despised. So, because of Greek culture, they highly, highly valued wisdom and power. And you could understand the two things they despised and loathed most were foolishness and weakness. And some of this thinking had begun to seep and leak into the church in Corinth. That's the context for this interplay between wisdom, foolishness, power, and weakness. It's very intriguing. Let me carry on. Where are the wise? He's sort of laughing at them. Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews said, show me, show me. The Greeks said, prove it, prove it. That's not in the text, but it's just clever. But we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Corinth, brothers and sisters of the Coast Vineyard in Auckland, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But, people, the big word, but, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's powerful stuff. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved, I was determined, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ, oh, and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise, persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might, rise, might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Do you like it? Isn't that a great passage? It is amazing stuff. I absolutely love it. So the issue in Corinth how, was how much should Christianity be um, engaged in its, in its image? It's all terribly important that we present ourselves well, that we advertise ourselves well. Some were saying, let's copy the culture. Wisdom is cool and power is chic. So let's market Christianity as wise and strong, full of wise and strong and powerful people. And then we'll attract other people. And then Paul comes into town and says, no, 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 you've got this so wrong. From the first century onwards, Christianity has had a bad image, people. In advertising terms, it is an appalling blunder, a public relations disaster. In marketing terms, a nightmare. And do you know what the, what the um, definition of advertising is? Advertising can be described as the science of arresting human intelligence for long enough to get money from it. <laughs> what you think about is quite shrewd. But the Corinthians were saying, Paul, you've got this all wrong. So here in this letter, he responds back. And what does he say? He says, have a look at the product, have a look at the sales force, and have a look at the selling technique. And his point is this. In the eyes of the world, Christianity seems to present a weak, foolish message. That's the product. The world has never been impressed by the message. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it is the power of God. And you say, why so foolish? I'll tell you why. Because the idea that you can find out the truth about God at the crucifixion of Jesus is crazy. To think that the God of heaven would reveal himself at a bloody, messy scene of torture and execution on a rubbish dump outside an obscure city in the Middle East. Think of the Think of it, the screams, the stench, the blood, the flies, the cursing, 
the blasphemy. It's ridiculous. That's, that was the turning point of all creation on that rubbish dump, people. And to many in Corinth, as it is in the UK, and I imagine it is with you, this is nonsense. This cross thing is nonsense. What is this about? I was a good little Presbyterian girl all my life, and I worshipped God religiously every Sunday of my life as I could remember. And it wasn't for 24 years that I heard the cross expounded. And then, praise God, I discovered his mercy. Because the cross was nonsense. It was a contradiction in terms. It was like talking about boiled ice. It was just ridiculous. It was crazy. It made their hair stand on end. It set their teeth on edge. The idea was impossible, mad and offensive. To some, it was a stumbling block. And to others, it would be laughable. You cannot be serious, as a tennis player once said. And then, like a crash of a cymbal, Paul says, but, but, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom, God's power, are condensed, encapsulated, made tangible in the crucifixion. And in Christ, listen to this, God has overpowered and outsmarted everybody. Done deal. That's what he did. And how has he done it? With his lavish grace and total forgiveness. It's just an amazing gospel, people. That's what we live for. That's what the vineyard exists for, people, to preach the gospel and to tell the people outside those doors who are without hope and without Christ in the world that this is what we buy into. This is what we sell out for. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is our saving faith. And without it, we're dead in the water. It's so important. And that's why, the, that's why we exist, to preach the gospel as best we can and to plant churches to the best of our ability. And as if to drive it home, Paul goes on and says, when I came to see you, five years ago I think it was, I preached a weak message. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus. Oh, and him crucified. I deliberately, consciously set about to know nothing except Jesus. And he's just about to put his pen down and he says, comma, oh yes, and him crucified. So Jesus is talking, Paul is talking about the Jesus who revealed himself and his glory on the cross. In other words, he's not giving us a potted gospel exposition here, but what he's saying, which a lot of Christians have thought of this passage, what he's saying is, I am showing you, I'm presenting to you a weak, seemingly outwardly weak, tortured, battered, blooded Jesus. And so, of course, Christianity appears to have a weak, foolish message. I don't know whether that was ever your perspective before you came to Jesus. Are you, there may be people in this room, and of course, I don't know any of you, so I can shoot the breeze, and it doesn't matter, because I'm going way afterwards. But there may be people here who've never been here before. And you've come, and you thought, I wonder what this is all about. Who are all these people singing into the wall? But, you know, this is something going on here, people. There's something going on here. It's a bit like, if I may be terribly topical, Westminster Abbey, which is, of course, where the funeral of the Queen will take place, I think, a week tomorrow. And Westminster Abbey used also to be my husband's school chapel because he went to school in Westminster. And if you go to the front of Westminster Abbey, there's a huge, huge rose window of stained glass. And from the outside, it looks terribly dull and rather drab and frightfully... I don't know, what do people make such a fuss about? 
And then you go into the abbey, and you start to go up the nave, and you turn round, and you look at the rose window with the light streaming through it, and it is breathtaking. It's full of color and glimmering and beauty. And it's like a very poor illustration of the Christian faith. From outside, it may look dull or drab. We may all look as if we're singing at the wall. We may all be slightly barking. But from the inside, people, it is just glorious. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's colorful. It's true. It's life-saving. It's worth selling out for. So there you are. There's the product. The second thing, of course, is the workforce. We are all weak, foolish messengers. Look at us. The world has never been impressed by Jesus' followers. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. I mean, there may be the odd doctorate floating around here, and that's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. That's fine. <laughs> you know, there are not many influential. I don't know how many mayors or county councillors or people of great influence in this room. Again, bravo, I say. Not many were of noble birth. Not many of us have blue blood in our veins. I mean, we're all weeping for a woman who did. But quite frankly, not many of us do. And if you do, you'll keep your head down and don't apologize, <laughs> from my experience. But, 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 people, God chose those sort of people. He chose the foolish. He chose the weak. He chose the lowly. Because it was his intention all along. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. It's always been like that. People have always thought it of us. Do you know, in A.D. 178, even before I was around, it says, there was a man called Celsus, and he wrote of the church, the early, early church, as all the Christians as they gathered. He said this, Let no cultured person draw near Christianity, none wise, none sensible. But if anyone is ignorant, if anyone is a fool, let him come boldly, he wrote. This is 176 A.D. Of Christians, he wrote, we see them in their own houses, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium in a swamp or a collection of worms in a lump of mud. <laughs> Welcome to the church, people. That's who we are. One seething lump of mud and happy for it. That's what they've been saying for thousands of years. It's reassuring, actually. Quite reassuring. And more recently, there was a wonderful article in the Sunday Times in London by an, um, an, um, a journalist who had come to know Jesus. And he's, he entitled it, I'm with the God, Spod, God Squad. Let me just explain what he said. This is people's attitudes to Christianity just a year or two ago. At a dinner party some years ago, he wrote, in passing and almost without thinking, I mentioned that I was a Christian. The person sitting next to me almost inhaled her asparagus. Her eyebrows shot off the top of her head. Nostrils bulging, she waved her arms as if for a passing lifeboat. A Christian, she gasped. A Christian as in believing in God. The God, that God. Oh dear, he said, yes, that God. You're not, you can't possibly be, she said. Now remember, wrote girl, she just found out that I hadn't been a drug dealer. I hadn't spent adult years waiting beds. I hadn't been smoking cigarettes out of the gutter, sleeping in dog baskets, and drinking benelin and vodka through a straw for breakfast. <laughs> I was none of those things. How could you possibly, possibly be anything as embarrassingly naff and hick and unbelievable as a believer, she said. Well, there it is, he said, I'm outed. Proud to be godly. 
proud to be part of the nerdy team. And then he wrote this, playing alongside fundamentalist loonies, hysterically joyous born again with mad hair, homemade jumpers and no sex life. I'm proud to be part of that team. I'm with them. How I wish I could be with the smart and the chic and the cool. The humanists have stolen all our best bits. A compilation of easy listening classics, loving your neighbor, not murdering or telling lies. Having nicked all the good stuff, they leave us defending some dodgy miracles, the Crusades and the Inquisition. <laughs> it's quite shrewd, isn't it? It's quite shrewd. That's how mad it is. That little person's jumping up and down, and I think she's believing it. Good for you, girl. Good on you. But, and here again it is, but God chose, verse 27. God chose, again, verse 27. He chose, verse 28. It's no accident, people. God chose. He chose ordinary people. And without wishing to be terribly rude, and I'm obviously a new visitor, and I look around this room, it's a fantastic church, people. I said to Jacinda, this is a fabulous church. But, a big but, you all look terribly ordinary. <laughs> Do you know, honestly, without wishing to be <laughs> disrespectful, we're terribly ordinary. We really are. Abraham Lincoln said, God must love common people because he made so many of them. <laughs> you know? And we're among them. We're among them. So God says, I'm going to choose ordinary people, like the people sitting on the chairs in the vineyard here. I'm going to choose ordinary people, and I'm going to make them extraordinary. I'm going to turn nobodies into somebodies. And if you ask who, from God's perspective, are the movers and shakers, the powerful people on earth, the people who are going to make an eternal difference, do you know the answer? The astonishing answer is the church, the local church people, you and me people. Ephesians 3 and verse 10, his intent, God's intention from the beginning of time was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That's who we are and that's what we do. We're not nerdy. We're saved. We're believers. And again, to drive his point home, he says, Remember, when I came to you, I came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Was it poor health? Was he nervous? Was he awestruck? Or was it the power of the Holy Spirit on him? I think it was all of those things. It could have been any. It could have been all. His point was this, I did not cut an impressive figure. I'm not a celebrity, I'm not a superstar. I'm not a man up the front in a shiny suit with a carnation. I'm really, really not. I came weak, fearful, and trembling. And so you might say Christianity seems to have a weak, foolish message, that's the product. Weak, foolish messengers, that's the sales force. And weak, foolish methods, this is the sales technique. I came in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might rest not on man's wisdom, not on my fast talking, but on God's power. And I think that's what was so important about this. And he's not just talking about preaching the gospel like you would up at the front. Do you know, recently, the Oxford English Dictionary, I mean, we do speak the same language, although it sounds a little different, but we speak the same words most of the time. But the Oxford English Dictionary um, had a new version. They ordered a new version. And in it, there was an, one or two things were slightly altered. New words went in and things were altered. Do you know the definition of preaching in the new Oxford English Dictionary? Preach, 
to give moral or religious advice in an obtrusive or tiresome way. <laughs> Welcome to ministry, Mr. Weeks. Isn't that shocking? Or maybe it's true. Maybe I'm giving you advice in an obtrusive and tiresome way with a funny voice. We shan't vote on it, people. But isn't that intriguing? We are despised, you know, for preaching the gospel. And it may be preaching, oh, I mean, just talking like this, but this is not usual. More likely, it's talking with people at the coffee machine. It's at the school gate. It's in the office. It's on the bus. It's taking the chances that God gives us to do anything we possibly can. Let, this is not in, in my notes, but this is just a thought, okay? I was once walking along the street, okay, which I do, but I was exercise walking because there was a time I was into exercise. I've got over it, clearly. <laughs> I've recovered. It was just a stage. And I was walking out one morning in a hideous outfit, hair all over the place, mad, mad hair, and there was a boy in the bus stop and he was reading a book, which was in Wimbledon Chase. He was reading a book like this, <laughs> honestly. And he had bottle-top glasses, we used to call them as children, big, thick lenses, obviously, almost as blind as a bat. And I looked at him as I was marching past, and I said, oh, poor thing. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, go back and pray for him. And I said, this is me, ordinary believer, and I, not my finest hour. I said, oh, Lord, poor thing. But if you don't mind, on this occasion, I won't, because um, I've, I look a fright, and I've not done my hair. And I felt the Lord probably said to me, um, don't worry, love, he won't see you. <laughs> Honestly, that was my thought. I mean, that's so awful. And then I thought, well, and then I, I kept walking, and then the Lord said again, go back and pray for him. And, I, and then I thought quickly, I thought, Lord... You know how we train our people to pray, not for a man and a man, and a woman and a woman, all that. I said, Lord, you know me, and I normally would, but you see, I am a woman on my own. And again, I felt the Lord come back, don't flatter yourself. <laughs> <laughs> He's amazing. He's so funny. And so in the end, oh, this is me, an ordinary believer, really blowing it. So I went back, and I said, do excuse me. I couldn't help noticing that you were really struggling with your eyesight. I know there's a God in heaven, and I know that he loves you. And would you let me just pray for you? And so he said, how wonderful. Thank you. And I prayed for him, laid my hands. Oh, it was full of fun and full of excitement. I put my hands on him, and then praise God, the 164 came along. And he got on the bus, and off he went. So I went on, storming along Wimbledon Chase, feeling very pleased with myself, slightly self-righteous, and I felt the Lord say, and you know, I've never heard an audible voice, but this was as close as it ever got. And he said to me, you will never know. You'll never know. Now, I've prayed for the sick, and I've seen them get better. I've cast out demons and then see them run away. But this was such a learning thing. We are such ordinary believers, and when we can, we give it our best shot. And after that, it's the Lord's responsibility. All we do, people, is we do what he said. Jesus said, go and pray for the sick, preach the gospel, cast out demons, bind up the brokenhearted, care for the poor, visit the prisons. Jesus said, you do that stuff. You do your bit, and I'll do mine. It's not our responsibility, and we may never know. But by being who we are and preaching the gospel as best we can in the situations in which we find ourselves, we are doing what he's asked us to do, and then it comes down to a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's all over to him. And Jesus said, you know, you don't go and pray for the sick just because you think you ought to. 
You go and pray for the sick and you care for the broken and you bind up the brokenhearted because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's all it is. That's the only prerequisite is to love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. So when you ask the question, how does God choose to unleash his infinite, unstoppable power and let loose his kingdom, his rule and reign? The answer comes back through the killing, the butchering of his own son on a rubbish dump 2,000 years ago. Our wonderful, wonderful, glittering Lord Jesus. And how does God choose to transform the world? The answer comes through ordinary people like you and me who love him. End of. That's what, that's what this passage is telling us. And then your third question might be, and so what is power ministry? What is ministering in power? The answer comes back, the weak, sometimes fearful, trembling, in my case, reluctant servant of the Lord. That's all it is, people. That's, that's our message. And it's incredible. It's just incredible. And he said, you want to know about me and my ministry? I came to Corinth weak, and God worked. So, where am I going? Where am I concluding? And I am coming into land. My landing lights are on. I'm right there. All you need, people, three things. Love Jesus. Have a pulse. You might want to check. If you have a pulse and you love Jesus, the only other thing you are is to be weak and to feel it. And you're qualified. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that pleasing? Isn't that doable? Couldn't we go out and change our societies and our places that we live in? Our families, our neighborhoods, our friends, our workplaces. It's all doable, people. It's possible. Paul makes it possible. And Jesus and his precious Holy Spirit bring it to pass. So you are more than qualified to serve our wonderful, wonderful Jesus. And he's entrusted his kingdom and his cause to very ordinary people within the vineyard like you and me. And the people said? Amen. Amen. You need to practice because that's how they'll say it in heaven and you need to get it right now. Okay? Amen. Why don't you stand? Why don't you stand? You cheeky people. I'm proud of it. Yeah, I'm afraid you are. And we're going to... How are we doing? We're all right. We're going to pray together the oldest prayer of the Christian church and the favorite, church, favorite prayer of the vineyard. Come, Holy Spirit. They obviously, these darling people behind me, the worship people have prayed and prayed, and they got all those Holy Spirit things. You know, we want the Holy Spirit. Come and blow on us, Lord. Come and blow on us. We need your Holy Spirit. Our hearts are set to worship and to follow. We want to do the things we've read about. We love this passage, God. We know this is the truth. We feel weak. We are weak. And yet we long for this. And we need your Spirit. So come, come. Precious Holy Spirit. Come and bless the church. Come on us. Come and fill us again. Dust us down. Fill us up to send us out. And if there's anything in that passage that you want to grasp onto, 
there's anything that you felt, that's for me. If there's any prayer rising up in you right now, pray it. Pray it. And remember the words of Jesus. He said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? If that's what you want, ask him. And then we're going to wait for a few minutes quietly and expect him to come. Come, God. from the front and I can see so I'm at an advantage and I can see and I can see the spirit of God resting on you people you are a serious people you have intention and your intention is to change where you live to do what it says and allow him to do what he only does so Lord I pray now that you would come and strengthen your church I pray that you will come and encourage your people. I pray that you will come and release the gifts of your Holy Spirit within them. That this will be a people that prophesy, a people that heal the sick, a people that know the wisdom and the discernment of, the, of God. A people in whom the fruit of the Spirit grows manifestly and obviously. some people here this morning as I was praying about it I felt there were people who want to have their stories like the story of me and the man in the bus stop now it wasn't a success story but I got plenty of others as well but you would love to have stories to tell and you may be somebody who's never laid a hand on anything animal vegetable or mineral you may be somebody who's never done any of that but would love to and if that's you, I, and if your little heart is thudding, or if you feel a little bit of something, which is the Holy Spirit, on you, then come down here. If you're happy to, come down here. We're going to pray for you. We're going to prefer you, as the Bible says. And we're going to ask God to come and to give you all that you need to go and do the stuff that you long to do. You may have done it before and been disappointed. You may have been separated from the people and been out of practice. You may never have touched anything before, but you want to. You want this stuff, people. And we're vineyard people, this is what we do. And if that's you, and if this is your moment, as it may well be, then you can come down here, and we'd love to pray for you. Well, thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. 
If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day and be blessed.